Happy to report there's been no hair pulling yet this morning. Just like Solomon to blame it on the women, right? Come on, bro. That's whack. God knows better than that. So we come to the end of Nehemiah. Nehemiah 13. And wow, is this a, a, a bit of a surprise ending, as we shall see. They got a healthy start. Startup company. So often, like churches and organizations, things were really exciting and out of the gate, lots of momentum, the cool new thing in town. Nehemiah comes back. They're going to rebuild the wall. They work hard. He's a good leader. He can deflect criticism while at the same time funneling the energy of his people into the building project. Then they come to chapter 12. There's a huge party. The people are safe in the wall. They're worshiping God according to his word. The Lord is speaking his promises to them. They're living in those promises. They've renewed covenant. And now what? Now we get chapter 13. And red flags should be going off all over your minds. This is the moment where we get to echo the words of the great theologian Scooby-Doo. Rut-row. This is a rut-row moment right here. What is happening? Remember me, oh God, for good. What in the world is going on with this foundation that's been laid and this frame that's been put up? And now, now look, now look at what the people are choosing to do. Nehemiah, like many of us in the moment we're in right now, is wondering, how did this happen? What will become of my legacy? What will become of all we did in our lives and in our families and in our funds and in our church? It's a good question. What about your legacy? And as I look around this room, I see many who have not only prepared for themselves, but by God's grace have prepared for their children and even for their grandkids. I had a friend challenge me a few years ago, you know, as Pastors are always kind of trying to do the thing and have a little bit for retirement and whatever. And he said, you know, you should, you should get yourself a fund, uh, kind of a target fund for, you know, 2080. I said, 2080? I don't plan on being here in 2080, buddy. He goes, well, it's not for you. It's not about you at all. I said, oh, okay. So set my kids up and by 2080, they'll all be 50. So they'll be responsible enough to handle money. He goes, no, it's not for your kids either. This isn't for your children. This would be for your children's children. This is when I was in my late 20s. You know, what would it look like in your late 20s to put 10 or 20 or 50 bucks a month away for not your kids even, but your grandkids? It's the question of our legacy. Nehemiah, in this moment, feels like his legacy is deeply threatened. Remember me, oh God, for good. I wonder if any of you might feel that way right now. Maybe you look around, you look around our country or your city or the world, and you're wondering with Nehemiah, what is happening? Remember us, O oh God, for good. All the work we've done, the foundation we've laid, are, are people forgetting what this is all about? Remember me, O oh God, for good. Maybe it's more personal. Maybe you've spent 
a lot of time on your knees praying for children who you love dearly but who have walked away from the Lord or grandkids that you would long to know Jesus and yet it seems like they're walking down a very different path and as long as you wait, your little, you know, Jesus authorized Harry Potter wand hasn't arrived in the mail that you can just point at people and fix them and make them believe what you believe. Maybe you feel like your legacy is threatened in that way or perhaps it's more internal. Maybe it's in your heart right now. Maybe surrounded by crisis and challenges and injustice and cities that burn, uh, your own heart burns deeply. Maybe you feel like in life right now, as nice and pretty as you look on the outside, you're hanging on by a thread. Maybe your problem isn't other people forgetting, but wondering of yourself, have I been forgotten? There's so much in uncertainty in Nehemiah 13. What a perfect text for the cultural moment that we're in right now. Maybe you wonder, I'll build, reform, renew covenant, covenant. I'll even push back on the apathy. But what if someone else comes along and ruins it? What if I do all this work and build all this stuff and someone else comes along and ruins it? Reminds me of the parable in Luke 12 where Jesus says to the man, he says, hey, yeah, you know, build your kingdom, hoard your stuff, protect your resources, good on you because this very night, your life will be taken from you. I think some of us feel that way right now, justifiably so. So Nehemiah cries out in this prayer, remember me, O God, for good. Verse 14 really fleshes out what he means here. Because he says it a few times in 14, oh my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. Have you ever been there where you've tried and you've worked and you've built and you're on the edge of feeling like it's all just going to go away at the hands of someone who doesn't care and doesn't know? So the question for us in this text is, what will our legacy be? How can we protect the legacy that God has given us? And what's the legacy that we should really be fighting for? You know, this week, I don't know, I was just hit pretty hard. I've been following the news, just like the rest of you. Although some of you said you've been turning off the news. Praise Jesus, you are wise, okay? But you can't turn it off completely. And you care about where you live and where you're from. And I was just hit hard this week by the deal in Wisconsin, in Kenosha. I'm sure you're all aware that there was a night, there was shootings, multiple people died, and as I'm reading the stories and the accounts, I'm like, these are kids. These are literally the age of some of your kids and grandkids in the streets. And I don't care which side you fall on, to me, the whole thing is tragic. The whole thing is unjust. The whole thing screams, this is not the way it's supposed to be. So what can we do when we feel helpless in moments like that? Well, Nehemiah shows us the answer. It bookends the book. It's in chapter 1, it's in chapter 13, and we're not going to like it. You're not going to like it because you're a doer. You're a doer and you get things done. In your life, in your family, in your business, you're a doer and you get things done and you've gotten things done and that's partly why you ended up moving to Santa Fe. Congratulations. And there ain't nothing wrong with that. But Nehemiah's answer 
isn't to, to employ his Harvard MBA and all of his project management skills and go about doing, which is my temptation to do, to fix, to. Instead, he prays. His book ends with a heartfelt prayer Remember me, O God, for good. But don't miss it. This prayer is not a prayer of apathy, it's not a prayer that lacks movement or the extension of muscles. This is a prayer that acts. It trusts God and acts upon that trust. That's how Nehemiah tells us that even when we're standing on the edge of the city that burns and the people who are disobeying, how can we know that God will use any of this for good? Because he's promised to do so if we come to him in prayer. And that's the main point of Nehemiah 13. This. This is why the book ends in this way. Anticlimactically and surprisingly, because God wants us to know that trusting reliance on him is the only way to have a lasting legacy in a languishing world. That's the point. Trusting reliance on God is the only way to have a lasting legacy in a languishing world. And if that's going to go from our heads to our heart, then in our text, there are three indispensable things that we need to know and sink our teeth into. The first one is this, oh God, remember. Oh God, remember. What does it mean to remember? What does it mean that God remembers us and that we remember him? That we trust in his promises and remember him knowing that he will never leave us or forsake us, even if we're not feeling it. See, that's what I love about coming together for worship. Worship isn't about me and my feelings. You know, some Sundays I come in and I'm really joyful and happy. And some Sundays I've come in and I've had a really hard week and I'm sad. And I'm sorry if that lets you down, but guess what? I'm as human as you are. That's how we are. Worship is about us having our heads lifted up to see the risen Christ. Because who we worship and what we worship and what's given to us in worship comes from outside of us, not from what's within. That would be the law. Oh, you're here? You want to have good worship experience? Well, I hope you feel better. That's bad news from A to Z. Instead, the word remember needs to be recaptured from our English language. We can't just understand remember as, as recollection. In fact, Derek Kidner puts it this way, I think brilliantly. He says, when God remembers you, it implies so much more than a vision of a memory or mere human recollection. God is not downloading from the hard drive into his RAM something that you did. Instead, it implies his active work of intervention on your behalf. It's for this reason that Nehemiah prays that God would remember, for those are the only safe hands in which to one can place their prayers. Amen. Oh God, remember. Now, now, why does Nehemiah need to pray this prayer? I mean, let's, let's get into the issues a little bit. Chapter 13 is a little bit of a dumpster fire, to be honest. The book, by the way, if they had asked me and they didn't, should have ended in 1247. Nehemiah should have ended with Kempton's sermon on the glory of the songs and the sounds of Jerusalem going out to the cities of the world. But it doesn't. It doesn't end on a high note, not for Nehemiah or for the people. 
Instead, we get three major infractions of disobedience. And ironically, three things that the people had agreed to obey in chapter 10. First of all, we're told that they neglect the house of God. Serious. They neglect the worship of God. They neglect the house of God and the tithes that the priests require to do the work. It's as if they're saying, you know what, God? I'm going to remember myself. It's my house. My church, my pew, my song, my favorite sermon, my you fill in the blank. Secondly, they work on the Sabbath. God says, look, all y'all are workaholics. There's nothing new under the sun. It's not wrong to work hard. It's not wrong to make a lot of money. By all means, do it and give it to the kingdom of Jesus. But you need to rest. You need to rest. You need to push back against the idolatry of this is the only life you have, so work yourself to the bone. Push the idols back by resting in me. They say, no, it's my money, my trade, my opportunity cost. And lastly, with marriage, intermarrying. And again, let me be emphatic. This has nothing to do with ethnic or racial differences. It's to do with the fact that they would make treaties among families in couples, and in that way, false gods would sneak into the family line. It's exactly what happens when the kids are growing up and can't speak a word of Hebrew. It means they can't read the Torah and the Word of God in their own language. It means they can't know what God is speaking to their souls. My house, my money, my pleasure. Sound familiar? And this was 2,500 years ago, people. But we are so advanced now. What is the meaning of this forgetting then? First of all is that it's, it's dehumanizing. When they don't trust and remember God, they can commit these injustices. They can make the people that they disagree with other. And by the way, I'm just going to say, let us be careful on Facebook and in conversations and around the table with your wine and cheese and wherever you're doing it. Because we're coming up now on some stuff in a couple months and you're going to really disagree with people. And you're going to disagree with people in this church, which is partly why I love this church. It's more diverse than y'all think. And that's a good thing. We need to be really careful to not dehumanize the people we disagree with. To commit the injustice of sin against people that we think don't hold our right and true opinion, that's what happens when we forget. The second thing that happens is that they end up telling a lie about the true story of God to the world and the culture around them. I want you to imagine this church and the city of Jerusalem like a cup. Why do you think God wants Nehemiah to build those walls? Is it so they can just be a, be a holy huddle and fight off their enemies? No. The Lord across the Old Testament speaks of the city of God like a cup. The walls are built, and what does God do? He pours in his blessing, his love, his faithfulness, his mercy, and then what? Right when he gets to the top, he stops so that his special little snowflake children can just bask in the fact that God loves them while the world outside the walls burns to the ground. No, no. What do the prophets tell us? I fill up your cup to what? Overflowing. So when we don't remember the Lord, and when we don't remember how to remember the Lord with active trust and faith on the basis of his promises, we tell a lie to the world. 
We were meant to be a city that God fills up so that we can overflow into Santa Fe in ordinary ways. If you like golf, great. You like going to the gun range, great. You like art and painting and all that stuff, cool. Whatever you like to do, you know, bug museum. (laughs) I'll start calling people out. You guys are a bunch of weird people. I love Santa Fe. You all have these weird, cool, crazy, quirky hobbies. God isn't saying, you know, walk up and down the street with a 90-pound Bible and beat yourself. He's saying, go out and do the things I've already given you that you love to do and let the love of Jesus overflow out of your hearts as you do it. Remember. Remember. The third big piece of this pie, the most serious, is that it's relational. It's that in all these things, they are showing that they don't trust God. That God is not good, that God is a liar, that God isn't really going to bless them, that he's not worth it, that they're not worth it. And of course, Nehemiah's response to these is not passive. Nehemiah is a good leader. Now listen up. Nehemiah is not a book about leadership, but it is a book full of many good leadership principles. So there's a a fourfold process that Nehemiah enacts here. The first thing Nehemiah does is he He sees the injustice in all three of these instances, the temple, the Sabbath, intermarriage. Secondly, he discerns what to do. And how does he do it? He discerns what to do, not by his own strength and wisdom, not even by consulting the nobles in committee, but he goes to the word of God. The third thing that Nehemiah does is he confronts. And who does he confront? I love this. He confronts those in power. He doesn't go out and beat up the people. He confronts those in power because they're the folks who have an opportunity to do something about it. And lastly, he brings a remedy. Now, this is that bit about pulling out hair. So weird. That's why I love the Old Testament. What are we talking about here? I mean, you can imagine Nehemiah. By the way, we read Nehemiah and we're like, oh, he's such a great leader. Yeah, how would you feel about your leaders coming in here and beating people up and pulling out hair? All right, so no. But what's happening here is not Nehemiah getting into fistfights at, at the local Jerusalem pub, you know, where they're sipping on Manischewitz. That's not the story. In the Old Testament, the pulling out of hair and the receiving of lashes was a consequence for sin. And it was a public demonstration of shame on account of those who had disobeyed and not trusted their God. And so they wouldn't, you know, pull out all their hair, but there would be a plucking out of hair in front to show guilt and need and shame. And I think part of what Nehemiah wants us to see here in this thing of remember me is that there are consequences for our actions. You see, folks, the tough part about Nehemiah 13 for us is we're not just in the place of Nehemiah. That would be easy. Oh, we're just like Nehemiah. No, we're being written to this story as well as as the role of the people. What is the focus of our fallen condition in Nehemiah 13? How can this get to our hearts? Well, it gets to our hearts because we're like the people. We're not very good at leaving legacy. We're not very good at trusting God with our legacy when it looks like everything is falling apart. And when we pray, remember us, O God, for good, oftentimes what we want is what's good for us right now in a way that we can understand it and control it in our time. And so how are we to remember Not with mere recollection, but by getting the gospel story deep into our consciousness. By getting 
the story of who Jesus is, who we are, what our need is, what he's done to meet that need deep into our souls so that when we are confronted with a pandemic and crisis and fears and anxiety, when we're just living life and these things come upon us, we're, we're not torn asunder by the world. Instead, we can pray this prayer with confidence. Remember me, O God, for good, and you will. Second thing we need to see here is remember me. It's personal. You know, Nehemiah is filled with a bunch of names. I know that we didn't all love reading all those names. Sometimes it's hard to read a bunch of Hebrew names that we can't understand. But part of what I think God wants us to see in here, you know, a, a, a soft hug from the intensity of being confronted with our own need is I know what you need and I know more than that. God looks at you and says, I know what you need for your legacy and for my kingdom. I know what you need and I know more than that. You know what else I know? I know your name. I know your name. And all these names are in Nehemiah to remind us that we too are named. Remember what the book of Revelation says. We will be given a white robe, the righteousness of Christ, and a new name forever. These names remind us that God cares. That when it comes to our legacy and our country and our family and the things that matter, we're not abstract to God. God is not the force out there. He's not the bubble of Brahman. You need to connect yourself to him by enough good works to appease him. He's personal. He knits you together in your mother's womb. He knows your name. He knows your name because you are his child. And so this is a prayer of dependence. A prayer of humble dependence and reliance. Nehemiah refuses to be a victim of what he cannot control. He cannot control what's going to happen to his legacy. Obviously, he is an incredible leader, and yet it's already crumbling to the ground. He's like a guy who just sold his business, and the new people who came in are already like tearing everything up and ruining it. But in his inability to control the future, he trusts the God who can. And therefore, he is not a victim to the challenges outside of him and the ruins around him and the fires that burn. He's not a victim to those things. Because God doesn't just remember, but God remembers me. And finally, oh God, remember me for good. Is it going to be okay? <laughs> Is it going to be good? I bet you wonder. When we come out of all this, Really, Lord, is it going to be good? So we get to pray the prayer of Nehemiah. Lord, please remember your kingdom and your church and your people for good. You also get to ask the question. That's what I love about Jesus. He doesn't invite us to come and be religious and just come and shut up and do, you know, go through the motions and be religious, follow the rules. He says you get to come with the fullness of trust but also the fullness of your doubts and your need, your skepticism, your depression, your anxiety, the things pressing in on you, you get to ask, is it going to be good? But in the asking, God reveals us, reveals something to us in Nehemiah. He reveals to us that we are human and we are finite and therefore we are all tempted. 
We are also deeply tempted right now to evaluate our legacy or the legacies that we care about based on what we can see. God sees what you can't see because he's not finite. God's promises and his power are not like ours. And so I think Nehemiah draws us to remember the words of 1 Samuel 16. Can you imagine? Right? Some of you guys have done this. You've been on boards and such where you're looking for the new guy. Here's Samuel. He's God's priestly prophetic board to go find the new king. And he's telling God, can't we get someone like Saul? Remember Saul? He had muscles. He was like Jewish Fabio. Good looking. Rapier wit. Strong, tall. Biologically, genetically disposed to those characteristics that we put under the rubric of, quote, leadership. And then there was David. And you and I would have despised David. We would have mocked and laughed. Don't you dare think you wouldn't have. If Samuel had told you and me, this kid, this shepherd boy kid, scraggly, dirty shepherd boy, who isn't tall, who isn't great, who doesn't have a resume, that's the one who's going to be king. We would have been like all the rest and seen only with our own eyes and not the eyes of faith. But God knew it wasn't anything in David's outward appearance that mattered because God doesn't look to the outward appearance. God sees the heart. And he knew that David believed that God would remember him for good. So how can we do it? Because even though we don't start with the doing, we start with the doing of the praying that acts and trusts, we do end up with the doing because we want to bear fruit in the community. What do we do? What's the charge here for us in 2020 in the middle of the global pandemic? How can we know if it is going to be for good? Because remember, Nehemiah really starts with the book of Ezra that really starts with the book of Jeremiah, which is really about Jeremiah 31, which was our call to worship. If we build it, the Messiah will come and all will be well and we'll have God's good just as we anticipated it. So how do we remember God and ask him to remember us for good even when it doesn't happen in the way that we expect? Nehemiah is a message of hope. And in that sense, he gives us a clear answer. You cannot, you cannot stake your life on the guarantee of your money or your family or your city or God help us, even our country. None of those things are a guarantee forever. God tells Nehemiah what to do. He says, trust me, because my kingdom alone endures forever. So do you want to have a legacy that can never be taken away? Do you want to be about something that, that can never end and God has promised will never be tarnished and the gates of hell can't stand against it? Then get busy about the doing with me of the kingdom of God. Some of those things are going to be more corporate. We'll do them in big groups. Some of those things are going to be small groups. Some of those things are just going to be one-on-one. -on -one. Let's open our eyes to the forgotten people of our city. How many people in our city are saying, I'm the forgotten one, and we have the honor and the privilege to come alongside them in the love of Jesus as our cup overflows and says, no, God has remembered you for good as we are the hands and feet of Jesus to the people around us. That's why if Nehemiah shows us anything, it's that trusting 
and active reliance on our God is the only way, the only way to have a lasting legacy in a languishing world. And so we can remember that. That is the guarantee that his kingdom will endure forever. So remember us, O God. Remember us for good. Let's pray. Father, would you remember us for good, for the good and the sake of your name, for good also in the sense of permanence. Remember us not only now, but remember us for our children and our children's children. Lord, we want to work hard. We want to build, but we confess to you. We're just like Nehemiah. We get frustrated when the stuff that we've built is undermined by those who are so seemingly entitled and didn't have to work hard for it. At the same time, Lord, we confess that we are not very good. We're the people too. We're not great at keeping legacy. You've shown us our sin. We've loved our own kingdoms more than we've loved your house. We've loved our own goals and money and pursuits more than we've loved your rest. Jesus, we've loved our own pleasure and our own power more than we've loved your word, which is for our joy. So Father, would you remember us for good through the finished work of Jesus, your son. How incredible it is to be reminded every week that we are never forgotten by God the Father because Jesus the Son intercedes for us day and night and speaks our name to God. And we are sealed in the blood of the covenant through Christ. May we never forget, for we are never forgotten. Amen.